We're good? Okay, great. It's good to be here on the high holy day of Super Bowl Sunday. I have left, forsaken my people, and come all the way here with you guys. You'll notice if, the, if, you, if you watch the Super Bowl, if you hear anything about it, um, that they will, at the end, they'll crown the winner as the world champion, um, which is incredibly arrogant of America, really, to think that the best American football team is the world champion. I would, I would propose that we get, like, whoever wins the Grey Cup that I could go up against. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Well, I think we need to get other people involved. Anyway, I just want you to know that I'm in Canada quite a bit. I'm, I basically have secondary citizenship here. I'm here 12 to 20 times a year, and um, I just want you to know because I know that you may have some stereotypical views of Americans, and you might not have a great favorable view of us uh, at times because of things like crowning ourselves the world championship. I'd just like you to know that I am... Uh, I'm probably all of those things. I'm probably all those things you don't like about America. In fact, I just want to start with a very arrogant theological statement this morning. I'd like to just, uh, please forgive me for this. I just got to speak the truth no matter how it hurts us here this morning. But I believe that God is Southern. He is. It's in Exodus 16. <clears throat> in Exodus chapter 16, if you have your Bibles, you can go there with me. Let me give you a bit of the backstory before we put the scripture up on the screen. The backstory is this, that God's children have been in slavery in Egypt for many, 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 many dozens of generations. And then God rescues them from slavery. They make this long road trip from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And on that long road trip, we've got a lot of kids in this church. There's something in the water or you guys need a hobby. A lot of children, a lot of procreation <laughs> happening. So you guys understand a road trip with children. At some point on this long road trip, God's children got a little bit hungry and a lot whiny. And so God pulls over the minivan, and he has a talk with his children through their babysitter, Moses. And he says these words to him in Exodus chapter 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, and the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions." A message in just three parts. If you're a note taker, you can go ahead and write these three parts down. You can tick them off as we go, and you know how close we are to lunch, all right? The first part is God's mission. And second is God's mandate. And then third, we'll look at God's method. God's mission, God's mandate, God's method. First, God's mission. God told his people when they were hungry there in the wilderness that he would feed them. And every day he would feed them, and they were to go out and gather enough food only for that day, only for that day. You can imagine generations in slavery dependent upon their slave masters to take care of them. God gets them out of slavery, and now for 40 years in the wilderness, he is teaching them they can trust him. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to father you every day until you finally get it through your head and your heart. You can trust me. You can really trust me. I love you, and I will care for you. I have four kids. My kids are 19, 17, 15, and 13. We're on odd years. I married an accountant. Everything's very organized. Girl, boy, girl, boy. <laughs> We're on odd years right now. Now, my youngest son was adopted from India when he was just four years old. He is now 13. And even though every day I make promises to him and I keep those promises and I feed him and I put clothes on his back and shoes on his feet, he still struggles with trust. 
He still has an orphan mentality that he's got to strive and he has to work. He's got to take care of of himself. So I find food hoarded away in the sock drawer or tucked inside of a pillow because at any moment, maybe my father will stop caring for me. Can you see God's people after generations in slavery wandering in the wilderness, and God saying, you don't have to fear anymore. I really do love you. I really do care for you. You are not an orphan. Let me just tell you God's mission. If you're going to hear only one thing that I say here this morning, I'd want you to know this. God's mission, what he is out to do, is to convince you and all the nations that he really is good and that you really can trust him. God's mission is to win over the nations so they would believe that he is good and that he can be trusted. And God started that mission with breakfast. He just gave his kids food. I'm going to give you food every day. Trust me. And go out every day and take only what you need for that day. He told them that was one omer. It's a little over two liters here. You're to go out every day and get one omer of food for every person who lives in your tent. Every day they did that. They collected one omer, and there was always enough. And they began to learn, oh, we can trust God. When he says he's going to do something, he'll do it. We can trust God. He is good. But then one day somebody, and we don't know who did it or why they did it, but someone took more than their daily bread. And this made God angry. They didn't believe he was good enough to care for them. Did he not, could they not trust him with tomorrow's bread? They took more than they needed for this day, just in case God wasn't good and trustworthy. And God turned what they had hoarded. He, tore, he took their leftovers and he turned it into maggots and it began to stink. I love to get my kids to memorize scripture. I had a hard time getting my, my now 17-year-old son to memorize scripture. It was just kind of boring. And I started with this verse in Exodus 16 that God turned their leftovers into maggots and it began to stink. That's a great verse. If you're looking for something, a way to get five-year-old boys excited about scripture, have them memorize maggots and stink. It's really great. And it's a good reminder for them to hide in their heart for their whole life that just having more than you need is not going to make you more satisfied. That hoarding God's goodness for ourselves, it doesn't lead to greater satisfaction. How many of us know that's true from our own life experience? We're not made to be satisfied by more. We're made to be satisfied by a God who is good and trustworthy. Now, they had their breakfast turned into maggots and stink, and they repented. Wouldn't you, if you came to breakfast and your bowl was filled with maggots and stink, you would go, what did I do wrong? God, I want to redo. And they cried out to God, and they said, God, we won't do that again. And from that day on, God's people took only their daily bread. Just enough for the day. But here's the best part of that. When they took only their daily bread, everyone had enough. Everyone got to taste and see that God really is good and can be trusted. It says this at the end of Exodus 16. 
It says, And when they measured it by the omer, taking only their daily bread, then the one who gathered much because he had much family didn't have more than enough. And the one who gathered little because he had little family didn't have too little. But everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And everyone got to taste and see for themselves how good and trustworthy God is. That is God's mission. To show you and through you to show the nations that God is good father and he can be trusted. You want to be a person who shows others that God is good and trustworthy, maybe start here this morning. Take only your daily bread and offer everything else to God. If you want to be a church that shows the city that God is good and God can be trusted, then take only your daily bread and open your hands to God. God, take whatever it is you need to show this city that you're good and trustworthy. God's mission is to show the nations he's good and trustworthy. Let's move on to God's mandate. Let's go jump far forward in Scripture to Galatians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 2. Here's the backstory before we put it on the screens here. Galatians chapter 2. What's happening is that the Apostle Paul is sent out from the church in Jerusalem. He's been worshiping in the church in Jerusalem for quite some time. And they now send him out as the very first missionary to the nations. For the first time ever, the good news of a God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. That good news is going to be preached outside of the Jewish tribe to the nations for the first time ever. This is an amazing, an amazing worship service we get to look in on. Now imagine if that happened here this morning. There are some group of people out there in the world who we've discovered have never heard the name Jesus. And so your pastor says, we think you're called to do that. And they bring you up here in front of the church. He lays his hands on you and he prays for you and sends you out those back doors to go to this unreached group of people. And as you are leaving, he says, wait, 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 wait. One final instruction I want to give to you. What would it be? We get to see what the final instruction was that was given to Paul, the very first missionary, before he began the first missionary journey. The pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John, laid their hands on Paul, prayed for him, and sent him out as the first missionary. And as he was leaving, they gave him one final instruction. Here's what it says in Galatians 2.10. Paul says this, All they asked was that we, that's Paul and his friend who was going out, should continue to remember the poor. It's the very thing I had been eager to do all along, he said. Who are the poor? The poor were the Christians right there in that church in Jerusalem. Scholars now believe that around 80% of Christians living in Jerusalem in the first century were living in poverty. Now, the Bible defines poverty as not having bread for today. If you don't have food for today, you are poor. If you have food for today and for tomorrow, you are rich. If you have food for today and that is it, you have everything you need. And 80% of the Christians in that room that day, they prayed over Paul. They sent him out to be a missionary. 80% of them, stomachs rumbling. 
Listless infants sitting on the laps of mothers whose breasts were depleted by malnutrition. Fathers' tears still wet on their cheeks from burying little ones far too soon. And they said, Paul, as you go and you preach this gospel to the nations, don't forget, don't forget our poverty too. Help us. Send help to us. And he said, this is something I've always been eager to do. This word eager is a Greek word that means a fervent desire that cannot be stopped. I wonder when you see poverty, do you have in you a Holy Spirit-fueled, God-given, desperate eagerness, a fervent desire to care for the poor that can't be stopped? I don't know where that comes from. I think I know where it came from in my own life. I wonder if it's what happened to Paul. You see, to Paul, poverty wasn't something on the nightly news. It wasn't a theological idea you hear about in a seminary. It wasn't something you see on a spreadsheet in the accountant's office. It wasn't a plank in a political platform. But poverty was a person. He knew people. He looked into their eyes. It wasn't just a number and a statistic. It had a name. He knew the people who were suffering. And for me, for most of my life, I had hoarded wealth. It was maggots and stink. It wasn't satisfying, but I didn't know what to do. And then I got invited to leave my comfort zone and to go see the way the rest of the world lives. And poverty stopped being a platform and it became a person. It stopped being a number and it got a name. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, I had an eagerness, a fervent desire to do something, to send help. And you couldn't stop me. I want to tell you about that day. I was in Ethiopia. I have a picture I took that day. It was in 2007, right outside of Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. I was a musician in those days. I'm not anymore. And I got a flat tire. It takes a long time for a musician to change a flat tire. <laughs> it was plenty of time to make a friend. And this little girl in this dirt road, she came shuffling out of the bushes toward me. Now, I don't see very well without these glasses. Everything falls off into a fog after about 10 feet. So I knew someone was coming toward me, and they were small, but I wasn't sure what was going on. And so I raised my camera lens to get a better look, and I zoomed in, and I saw her. I saw not just poverty. I saw a person for the first time in my life. And the details of it, the stuff the economists and the politicians and the spreadsheets and the preachers just had never told me about. That her hair was oranging around the edges for malnutrition. Her skin was not the beautiful brown that God meant it to be, but it was an ashy gray. Her eyes were runny, her nose was crusty. The dress she's wearing was someone else's discarded shirt. She had no socks or shoes or pants. I looked down at her feet as I motioned her closer toward me and noticed she had no toenails, robbed by starvation. 
Her tongue is a thing I'll never, ever forget as long as I live. It was swollen and bright red like an oversized strawberry shoved into her mouth. She couldn't even close her mouth around it. And we didn't speak the language, but even if I had spoken her language, she couldn't have communicated to me what she needed. And so she did, she did it the only way she touched. She took two fingers and she pointed into her mouth over and over and over again. I wasn't there on a feeding mission. I was there just to learn. I had a couple of granola bars and a bottle of water. It wasn't much, but what little I had, I pulled out of my backpack and I shoved into her arms and I held her close and I just said a quick prayer. God, would you please bring your kingdom? Would you do your will in this little one's life? Would you give her food to eat and clothes to wear and shoes on her feet and a doctor to put her back together again? Would you send someone to tell her about the gospel? Will you prove to her, God, that you are good and that you can be trusted? And I found the nearest pastor and I walked her to him and I put her little hand in his and I just prayed for them both. And he promised he would care for her. He would take care of her. He would find her mom and dad, find where she had wandered from in search of food and help. And as I pulled away that day, I looked in the rearview mirror and I could see that man holding her hand and a cloud of dust around them. And if I close my eyes at any time when I don't want to get on another plane and I don't want to sleep in another hotel away from my wife and I don't want to rent another car and I don't want to be gone on Super Bowl Sunday, if I close my eyes, I can see that little girl. And there's an eagerness in me that you can't shut up. Nobody can. That God put there when poverty stopped being a number and it got a name. Stop being philosophy or a platform, and it became a flesh and blood person. For poverty to ignite in us an eagerness to care and to love, we've got to leave our zip codes sometimes. We've got to find some new neighbors, learn some new names, build some new relationships. And it hurts. But it lights in us an eagerness that no one can put out. God's mission is to prove himself to the nations as a God who is good and can be trusted. God's mandate, not just to Paul, but to every follower of Jesus Christ, is to remember the poor eagerly. Lastly, God's method. How are we supposed to do that? So you, you understand the mission and that you're part of it and you have an eagerness, but what are you supposed to do? It seems like there are too many problems and too many options. It's overwhelming. Let's just simplify it. What is God's method clearly outlined in Scripture? Let's look at what Paul did next. How did Paul remember the poor? Would you just back up one page in your Bible? And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13, 14, and 15. And we're going to take this just one verse at a time. First, we're going to answer the question, looking at what Paul did, how much may we give to the poor? So here's what Paul did. He left Jerusalem, and he went out, and he preached the gospel, and he remembered the poor. So as churches, as thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ, they began to gather together in communities, in ecclesia, in churches all over, in Antioch, and Ephesus, and Corinth, and Galatia. And as those churches reached a state of maturity, then Paul would write to them about the needs of the poor in Jerusalem. You can see this throughout Paul's letters. 
Sometimes you'll see Paul mention the offering. This is what he's talking about. Paul's Paul's plan was, when Christians become mature, I'm going to ask them to give a little bit of their leftovers, a little bit of their extra manna that they've been hoarding. Would you give a bit of that? And we're going to carry it to the church in Jerusalem so that through the church in Jerusalem, the needs of the people can be taken care of. And so Paul begins to write letters to these churches. We're looking at just one of them, the church in Corinth. He writes to them saying, you have an opportunity now to give to the, to the church in Jerusalem so that through the church in Jerusalem, God's, the people, the needs of the community can be met, all right? So here's what he says about this opportunity to give. Our desire in collecting this offering from you is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. And in this very first verse, he answers the question, how much may we give? Let me show it to you. See that word hard-pressed? That's the Greek word thalipsis, which is usually in your New Testament translated as the English word tribulation. <laughs> That's a scary word. That's a notch up from hard-pressed. Tribulation, a great suffering that could take the life out of you. It's actually a word picture of a person trapped under an enormous weight, maybe a boulder, and the life is being squeezed out of them. Can we just be honest? How many of us think of the offering plates going by a little bit like that, right? Or when the guy from out of town comes and you know he's going to ask you to sponsor a child. It kind of feels like that, right? Like, can we just get this over with? I'd like to go to lunch. Can we do that? I mean, it's, our attitude toward giving tends to be like, let's just get through it. Let's just, let's just survive it. And that's okay, that was, that was my attitude for many years. And can I be honest with you? Sometimes it still is. That's human. He says, look, giving shouldn't be a tribulation. It shouldn't be something you just try to get through. It shouldn't be a burden. And he's speaking to them about how much you may give. You may give until giving any more becomes really a threat to your life. It's not just about, hey, the attitude you have shouldn't be that giving is a horrible thing. But he's being very practical here. Don't give so much that you plunge yourself into poverty. Now, where I come from, in way deep south, about 2% of people who attend church regularly, that's once a month, give any of their time or money to their local church. About 2%. Of those who give, the average amount they give is just over 2% of disposable income. So where I come from, and I know it's not this way in Canada, you guys are way kinder than we are. But where I come from, the goal of the pastor when speaking about giving is just to get people to give something. It's to set a minimum like, to look out on a room of people who at one point in their life said, all to Jesus I surrender, and say, would you just surrender anything? Like, anything? You have 30 minutes to give us? Could you give us, like, a dollar? Like, anything at all? We're trying to love our community and our world, and we can't do it without you. Is this your family? Can you pitch in and help? That's how it is. Again, I know you guys don't have that problem. You guys are all very cheerfully generous. I know that's not an issue here, but where I come from, that's the issue. And that's not the issue that Paul's dealing with. 
Paul is not showing up to Corinth asking people to give a minimum or to just give anything at all. Paul is speaking to a group of people whose lives have been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They came from worshiping at a pagan cultic shrine, being taken out of that and forgiven and freed by the blood of Jesus once and for all. No more daily rituals, no more daily sacrifices. They are free and forgiven and loved and he is good and he is trustworthy and they are so eager to share that with the nation that he has to say to them, slow down. Please don't give too much. As you go to provide housing for someone else, don't drop the deed to your house in the offering plate this morning. Don't leave your family without a roof. As you go to feed other people and their kids, please don't starve your own to do that. Don't give to the point that it's a tribulation, that it threatens your life. So how much may we give? We get to give. We get to give until giving a penny and a minute more would be a tribulation, a threat to our own lives. He sets a maximum, not a minimum. Let's go to the next verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 14. He says, at the present time, your plenty, literally your leftovers, your extra, your excess, your surplus, will supply what they in Jerusalem are needing. So that in turn, their plenty, their extra, their excess will supply what you need. What are we giving? We're giving what we don't even need. Isn't that a beautiful thing that at this point in history, our God is so good that while there are always going to be people, we're promised, who don't have enough, he also promises there will always be people who have more than enough. And they get to participate with God and caring for others, and showing them that he's good and trustworthy. What are we giving? What's not even ours? What's already a gift from God? It was manna from heaven. You know, God fed his children manna in the morning, this delicious, sweet, flaky bread. In the evening, he fed them quail. They didn't have to go work for it. It just came down, which proves that God is southern, going back to my first point, because that is basically biscuits and chicken. That's what God fed his people, right? <laughs> And they didn't have to work and they didn't strive for it. And it's easy for us, it's easy for me to look at what I have and think, wow, but I put in the sweat, I put in the time, I, I, I did all the work. Yes, but who gave you the brain that let you do that? Who gave you the hands that allowed you to do that work? Who woke you up this morning and made your brain fire and your lungs pump and your heart beat? Manna, it's all a gift from God. So what are we giving? The extra that God so generously gave to us anyway. Last part. The next part of this verse. 2 Corinthians 8, 14. Back half. The goal, he says, of this offering is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Does that sound familiar? He's quoting Exodus 16. It's easy to leave some of the stranger stuff from the Old Testament behind and go, well, it's a new day. We're on the other side of the cross, so we don't have to worry about that. Paul takes this crazy law about breakfast out of the Old Testament, places it solidly on the other side of the cross in front of Christians then and today and says, keep taking only your daily bread. Keep taking your only your daily bread. And keep sharing the rest because God has a goal of equality, which is that not that everyone has the same amount, but that everyone has the same 
quality of life. It's not about quantity, it's about quality. That everyone has their basic need met. Those needs are different, but everyone has basic need met. That's the goal, he says. But there's a second part. Not only do we give because we're after equality, and that's what God has always wanted ever since Exodus 16, but go to the next slide. In the very next chapter, we see the end result of everyone having equality. This service, this offering that you're giving, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. That whenever we take only our daily bread and we share the rest, the nations get to taste and see that God is good and trust Him. And the nations are erupting in gratitude to God. That's why we give. God's mission is to prove to the nations He's good and trustworthy. God's mandate to every follower of God is that we would have an eagerness to care for the poor. But what is God's method? Us. The church. God's method is for the church that has more than it needs, to share with the church that has less than it needs, to meet the needs around it, so that there will be equality and there will be thanksgiving to God all over the world. I want to tell you a brief story about what this looks like, because all this is very theoretical, but let's just get very practical. What does it look like to participate in God's mission, to heed his mandate, and to be God's method. What does it look like? I was in Nairobi, Kenya in the Mathari slum, the second largest slum in all of Africa. One million people are crammed into three square miles of rusting corrugated metal. We can just flip through these slides while I'm talking. Thank you. My friend and I sloshed our way through the serpentine paths of the slum on a very rainy day until we finally arrived at Elliot's house. This is Elliot. Elliot, 18 years old, dapper Kenyan young man, so handsome. He knew I was coming, so he put on his very best to greet me, his school uniform, seafoam green tie and gray sweater. Met me out in front of a house smaller than the average North American bathroom, just six by eight. Can you imagine that everything you own in the whole world fits into only 48 square feet? Now, if that was you... Would you smile like this? The smile is what shocked me. It just didn't go together, that little house and that big, it didn't make sense until he explained it to me. He said, yes, my house is very small, but my God is very big. He brought me in out of the rain. I sat on his bed and he told me his life story. He said when he was five, his mother passed away, leaving his father to care for him all by himself. His dad worked so hard, but... Doing his very best, he couldn't earn just $2 a day. Unemployment was over 40%. He has the most common job on the planet. There are about 8 billion people on the planet. Almost 3 billion of those work as day laborers. Please think about that as your church plans mission trips. We like to go and we like to build and we like to paint and we like to dig. But when we do that, we're stealing work from the poorest of the poor. Elliot's father was a day laborer. He went out every day. He took any job that he possibly could. Working his hardest and his best, he couldn't earn $2 a day. It's not enough money to put food on the table. So he did what any dad here would do. He starved himself. He skipped meal after meal, day after day, just to give Elliot something to eat. A little rice, a few beans. On a good day, maybe a plantain or a potato. 
And it just wasn't enough to keep Elliot well. His immune system was shot by malnutrition, always sick with something, no money to see a doctor, no government program to kick in and help along the way either. All he could do was hope and wait. Now, if you're born into what we call poverty here in North America, you at least have the hope of, of public school. I mean, I can't convince my kids back home in Nashville that school is a gift from God, but it really is, you know. It's a gift that most of the world doesn't get for free. So here, you could go to school, and if you work hard enough and long enough, and let's, let's be honest, some of us have to work a lot harder and longer than others, but eventually they give you this magical piece of the paper, right, called, called a diploma that unlocks a world of options and possibilities, so you could give your children a better life than the one you were born into, but that's not how it works in Kenya, in most of the developing world, these mothers and fathers who can't even afford to put bread on a plate somehow have to figure out how to put books in a bag. you got to buy those books in the backpack and the uniform and the shoes and the, and the meals and pay fees on top of that. It's impossible. It's a hopeless situation. Until our big, good, trustworthy God sent a pastor to come knock on the door. Standing at the door that day, that pastor made the wildest promises. Elliot said he was a big man with a big voice, and it was hard to believe him, all the things he said he would do. He promised Elliot he wouldn't go to bed hungry anymore, but every day he'd have something good to eat. He told me if he got sick with a toothache, a stomachache, or something really life-threatening, there would be doctors and dentists and nurses and counselors to put it back together again. He told him that he could go to school and learn to read and write and add and subtract. And the books and the backpack and the fees, it would all be taken care of. And along the way, as he worked toward that diploma, he'd be taught a skill as well. How to build things out of wood or steel or work on computers or maybe fix those. They'd find his passion. They'd teach him how to, how to, how to turn that into a trade so that someday he'd be able to give his children a better life than the one he was born into. Poverty will end with you, he promised. It's not the best or the wildest or the hardest to believe promise that preacher made that day. He saved that for last. This is a promise some of us this morning desperately need to hear, so listen. Preacher got down real low so he could look Elliot right in the eyes and he said, Son, God sees you. God loves you. And I promise God has a good plan for your life. And Elliot said, that's the day that everything changed. That's the day that Elliot became one of Compassion's children. Compassion invented child sponsorship in 1952. They were the very first. And to this day, they're still the highest rated child sponsorship organization of their kind. They are the very best. You don't have to believe me. I'm just a musician with a big mouth. My wife is an auditor, a professional skeptic. She did all the research. My heart was bleeding. Oh, we've got to do this. I said, wait, wait, wait. Let me check. And it checked out. The compassion actually did everything they said they would do, and they did it the way they said they did it. How rare is that in the world? I trust them. Compassion works through the local church following Paul's method. 
Everyone at Compassion's Children is connected to a local church, and through that church, they receive five things we all want for our kids. Education, health care, proper nutrition, clean water to drink. But most importantly, everyone at Compassion's Children receives a Bible written in their very own language and the opportunity to hear and to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the deepest poverty that any of us can know isn't physical at all. It's spiritual. And it changes lives to look into the eyes of a child who feels forgotten and say, you're not. My God is good and you can trust him. Let me show you. Because compassion works through the body of Christ, preaches the good news of Christ, and demonstrates every day the love and power of Christ. On average, 500 children every single day come to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Compassion International. That every child needs a sponsor. These churches can't do this on their own. They can't care for hundreds of their neighbors on their own. They need the church, you and I, who have more than we need to share, to just pass a little bit of our biscuits and chicken their way. And a sponsor is someone who gives $41 a month to underwrite to pay for the care that one child is receiving from that church in their neighborhood. But listen, hear me on this. The most important thing a sponsor gives is not their money. The most important thing a sponsor can give a child is themselves. I asked Elliot his sponsor's name. And he said, my sponsor's name is Nick Erskine, Northern California. I did not have the heart to tell him Northern California is not part of the dude's name. He seemed so, so proud. And so I just played along. I said, well, does Nick Erskine, Northern California, does he ever write you letters? And he got so excited and he pulled from this hiding place where he keeps his few treasures in life. He pulled out this big ball of plastic and cloth and he began to unwrap it like inside was the Holy Grail. And what was in that protective bubble? An inch thick stack of letters. Letters from Nick Erskine, Northern California that started showing up when Elliot was seven and they were still arriving when he was 18. I read those letters, we read them together. Simple things, really, that made a huge difference. I love you very much, he said. I'm praying for you today and every day. I am so proud of the man that you're becoming. Don't quit. God has a big plan for your life. Keep going. In some days, he says, those are the words that pull him through. To know that someone on the other side of the world chose him, loves him, believes in him enough to share the gospel with him. I wanted so badly for Nick Erskine in Northern California to see what I was seeing because the best of us are skeptical. I just wanted him to see this is real. I wanted him to see the letters he wrote made it across the oceans and the miles, not just into a young man's hands, but deep into his heart. That the money he's been sending month after month all these years it actually did what Compassion said it would do, exactly how they said they would do it. I wanted him to see it, but I couldn't afford the plane ticket to bring Nick all the way to Elliot. So I brought Elliot to Nick. Watch this.
As I was leaving Elliot's house that day, I noticed some words that were scribbled above the doorway. I looked more closely and I saw that it was a prayer written in his own hand. He prays every day when he wakes up. God loves me enough to feed me, bless me, give me hope for the future. Amen. Because one man <laughs> sponsored one little boy, that little boy got to become a man. And just by giving him food, by just meeting his physical needs first, he came to believe that God really is good. And he came to trust him with his deepest need of all. Today, Elliot is 28 years old, and that little three-year-old boy on his shoulders, I got to take them to a, to a zoo. They'd never been to a zoo. And his name is Jaden. And the first thing Elliot said to me, this is a decade after we first met, he said, Sean, Jaden doesn't need compassion's help. God's mission is to show the nations just how good and trustworthy he is. His mandate to every one of us is that we would join him and eagerly care for the poor. His method is the church. The church with more than enough. Partnering with the church that doesn't have enough to love its own neighbors. And the world erupts in thanksgiving to God. This morning, I hope at the very least that you would leave with your eyes open to all the manna God has given you and that you would simply be grateful as you go through your week at every little thing God's given Every meal, you would savor it. Wow, thank you, God. What a gift. And that that would begin to change your heart as we become more grateful, we become more generous. Second thing I would hope that you would do this week is that you would begin to loose your grip. I'm doing it too. Just begin to loosen our grip on all that we call ours and begin to call it his. And just ask God, how do you want to use this to show yourself to the nations? Lastly, I would hope that you would begin to give. If you don't currently give any of your time, your energy, your wisdom, and your resources right here in this church, would you please do that? Would you treat this family like family? Begin to give to one another, and then through this church, be able to give to this community and the world. And after you give here, if you have any more manna left to give, would you sponsor a child with compassion this morning? Sponsor a child with compassion. We have tables out in the lobby. On, on those tables, there are packets. Your pastor's going to come and tell you more about why those packets are special, why they come from where they come from. But on that packet is the name and the face and the birthday and the story of a real person. It's a real child. It's the only packet in the world that exists for those, that child. So take that packet and please don't leave with it, but go ahead and fill it out. It will only take you a minute. Fill that out. Turn it into us and begin your relationship with the child. It will allow you to introduce that child to Jesus and allow one more person, person in the nations to, 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 to give thanks to God. Let me say a quick prayer for us and your pastor is going to come and close us out. God, I just love these people. I thank you, God, for speaking this morning. I pray that if there's anything I've said that is not true or beneficial, that you would just wipe that from our memories. But God, anything that is good and true and right and of you, that your Holy Spirit would drive that truth deep into our hearts and our minds, make it unforgettable. Chase us down with your calling, with your command, until we obey 
cheerfully, gladly, eagerly. God, thank you for all that you've given us. We give it all. We open our hands to you. We ask you to take what it is, God, you would like from us and of us to bless this church, this nation, and the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wow. Thanks, Sean. Um, yeah, in closing this out, uh, many of you know that in, at the end of November, this past November, I had the opportunity to go with Compassion Canada down to Peru. Now, what you may not know is I didn't want to go. I thought I knew what child sponsorship was. And I thought that if we just let Compassion come into our Sunday morning experiences and tell us what Compassion did and what they were about, that we were, it was good. Did, did our job. I was wrong. Uh, when I went down to Peru, uh, I saw something that, that I didn't even know existed. I, I saw, here's what I didn't see. I didn't see the name of Compassion anywhere. I saw the church in the lives of people and people being saved because of the work of the church. You see, I saw, I saw the results of partnering. And uh, let me tell you, I'll, I'll tell one quick story. I know that uh, you know I'm long-winded, but I'll tell one quick story. There was a young lady by the name of Melita. Melita was 22 years old, and she was a compassion child. And uh, first church we went to go visit, I learned that we're not called sponsors. We're called godparents. That just rocked us. We're a bunch of us down there as pastors, and we're seeing what's going on, and we look up there and we say, welcome godparents. We're like, what are they talking about? And the pastor began to tell us what that meant and how relational it was and how much we actually meant to them and how much they pray for the North American church and for their sponsors and stuff. And so it just rocked us, and then from that point forward, it just set the tone for what things were. And so Melita was a young lady that was sponsored. I think she said she started getting sponsored when she was seven years old. She did not have a good relationship with her parents at all. And her sponsor, who wrote letters, her godmother, gave advice. You see, Melita would ask her, I'm dealing with this. What should I do? And she started saying that this woman that was sponsoring her was like this second mom to her. She wrote once a month. And as she began talking about it, and I asked her, and I was there with another pastor and a translator, and we asked, like, what did this mean to you? And she just said, I don't care about the money. My pastor told me my, I mattered, and my godmother proved it. Like, you hear that? Their pastors tell them that they matter, that God sees them, right? But her godmother showed that she proved it from across the sea. Um, there is nothing really more important to them than the relationship that comes through these letters. And so I'm not going to go on too long about it, but I would encourage you this. Uh, put a face to poverty. That's, I love that. Put a face to it. Go out there. If you're not already sponsoring a child uh, and, and not already giving in some way towards, um, towards people who have none, giving out of our extra towards people who have none. Um, let me encourage you to go out there and, and choose a child to just invest in. 
It's not about paying their way. It's about investing in them. And, and so do that on a relational level. Uh, we, and in order to do that, here's what we did. We know that a lot of us have connections to the area of Pandavida, Pandavida, Mexico. And what we then did was we said, okay, where are there any compassion churches that are in that area that are not being well-sponsored so that we can enter into relationship with them to be able to reach more kids? And then on top of that, go visit. Go visit on a regular basis, sending people out to go visit. And so that's what we did. The names, the first 30 names that are there, I'm told, are, are kids from that area of Mexico that we're able to invest in and go see and watch them grow and see how they benefit the lives of others. Here's, here's the rest of Melita's story. So she told us this stuff about the letters, but Melita is 22 years old. She came up through the program, went to university, got a business degree, and is now working over at Compa the Compassion Site in Peru through this church, handling their finances and things. And I asked her, what is your dream? You know what her dream was? To sponsor a kid. That was her dream. What an amazing amazing fruit-bearing ministry. When I went down to Peru, I did not see desperation. I saw hope. And we need to understand that that's what we're partnering with. We're partnering with hope. Uh, and there's an awesome tagline that Compassion uses. Simply put, so that we can see children released from poverty in Jesus' name and come to know personally the God who loves them. And I can tell you from firsthand knowledge, that is exactly what's happening with compassion. So would you pray with me as we close off our service? But I, I know that a lot of people love to rush out the back door to your vehicle. Can you just pause for a moment? Just take a look and see if God is stirring your heart towards a child to invest in. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for this powerful message that we received from Sean and how you used him to bless us this morning. And so, Jesus, as we are looking at uh, your mandate, your mission, and your method, Lord, I thank you so much that it's so clear through Scripture how you are the God of provision and that your mandate or your mechanism that you use in the New Testament is the church. And I thank you for this message that we also see from Paul. It's this, this idea that we don't give to the point of tribulation, but we certainly give out of our extra. And so, Jesus, would you help us to prioritize so that we can understand what our extra actually is? That we lean into needs, not just wants, and we would be able to look at the lives of others and say, you know what, Lord, I will answer that call. I will be the person that you are going to use to be able to invest in that life. And to that end, we pray, Lord. Amen.